Welcome to The Science Whisperer with Christine Brooks and Dr. Paul Behrens. Hello. Hello. Every week we'll be talking about some topical science or historical science. So basically all of the science. And I don't know much about science and Paul knows quite a bit more. And if he doesn't, he can Google. Woohoo! So welcome to The Science Whisperer. Science Whisperer. Science Whisperer. Science Whisperer. Science Whisperer. This week we have got a jam-packed agenda for you. First up, we're going to do a roundup of this week in science. And then we're going to have a look at the way films have changed over time. What's the creativity? What's going on with the creativity now compared to the golden age of cinema? And what does Inception and Casablanca have in common? Social science alert. It's happening. And then finally, we are going to give you a primer on fusion. All of the questions you always had about fusion, but were too scared to ask. First up, this week in science, we've got a discovery by the Kepler satellite. Then we're going to talk about what the shutdown meant for science now that the shutdown is off. And finally, our hopes of eternal energy. Have they been dashed or just delayed? Fusion update. Over to you, Paul. Yeah, so this week Kepler discovered an extremely highly tilted solar system uh, out there. So this is 2,800 light years away. So a long, long way away. Uh, the nearest uh, system close to us at the moment is, is, is four light years away. So this is a lot, lot further than that. And what Kepler's done is it's looked at the... Kepler the satellite. Kepler satellite, yeah. No, Not Kepler's... the 16th century uh, astronomer. He lives on. He yeah. lives on. Thank goodness. Um, this is Kepler satellite. So he's been looking out. I'm going to call him he from now on. Yeah. He's been looking out at the star yes. that's 2,800 light years away and looked at the shadow that's cast of a planet as it moves across the star. Mm -hmm. And by looking at the, the shadow, you can look at what the planets are like in front right. of the star. So what Kepler discovered was this whole solar system is hugely inclined and tilted. So what that means is in the Earth's system, so between us, the star, uh, the sun and Earth, we're all orbiting very, very closely to the way in which the sun orbits. So if you can imagine the sun is orbiting... What's the sun orbiting? Well, the sun is orbiting all of the other planets, but the sun is also rotating, oh, sorry. Right. It's easier to think about it in terms of rotating. So the sun is rotating, mm -hmm. and we're all rotating about that same, same oh, axis. Same sort of plane. Same sort of plane. Oh. Now, the Earth is rotating a seven-degree inclination to that. It's not much. No, so it's not much. It's very, very close. In this other solar system, it's the planets are rotating at 45 degrees. That's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. And, I you know, many astronomers didn't think that was possible. Why wouldn't um, that be possible? Well, because one of the ways in which angular momentum and the conservation of angular momentum, which would be a bit complicated, and perhaps we'll go into it in a future primer when we're going to talk about uh, angular momentum, means that you often expect things to collapse into a disk. Right. So a flat disk and everything's going to rotate around the same axis. Mm. Whereas with this system, it doesn't, and it's all sort of wonky. Uh, now the reason has been so that's some follow up in, um, can I suggest yeah. why I think that might be the case go is it because it's a new solar system uh, don't know it's not, not, not a new one no it's not the likely no um, although if it is a new solar system things will be inclined but because things are still going to have take time to sweep out areas to build up planets, right? Yes, you're not going to get a planetary system. You're just going to get a dust cloud. Mm -hmm. So at the very beginning, you get what's called a planetary nebula. Okay, another primer right there. Um, primer central. Primer central. This great film as well. Um, and so the, this this tilted solar system wasn't really uh, sort of very well understood until the astronomers did follow up. 
hmm. observations with the Kex telescope. These are 10 meter telescopes uh, in um, Hawaii, I think. Oh, are they in Arizona? Forget which one. Somewhere, but, in, the um, somewhere in the States. And um, they followed it up and saw that there's a really large planet that's orbiting at a very inclined orbit. Mm-hmm. And what this large planet is doing is pulling the smaller planets that Kepler's detected um, off axis and, and highly tilted to the sun. So that's our first bit of uh, news this week. Right. Interesting. On to the next one. The government shutdown in the United States is over. Yay! Yay! Everything back to normal, but not quite. Not quite, though. Do you want to know? There's been some stuff that's affected, some science things have been affected by the shutdown. So even though we're back on, back in business, Mm. there's some irrevocable effects. Hit me with it. What what are they? Okay, number one, we've got... uh, So the flu flu vaccine. So it's coming up to flu season in the United States. Mm And normally at this time of year, they'd be tracking the disease. Scientists would be tracking the disease to see what, what kind of patterns it was, it was making. Mm. Um, and then that helps them whether or not the, se- the flu strains for this year are the same as the vaccine supply that they've got. Mm-hmm. But those scientists haven't been able to track it. So now they've got to catch up. Now they've got to catch up. So mm. there's a bit of a gap in the, in the knowledge. Who's, fall- who's fallen ill whilst we've been away? That's right. Ring in. Exactly. Don't come close to us. We don't want it. We don't want your germs. Yeah. Um, secondly, we've had some uh, the weather and climate issues. So in Antarctica, this is the, the there's a small window of time for summer travel to mm. Antarctica mm-hmm. um, when people can go back. And, and when the shutdown back and forth, and when the shutdown happened, um, they called a whole bunch of scientists home. Um, and so now that it's back on. You know, they'll send people back out there. Yeah, I read about that. That's yeah. so sad. So some people arrived by ship in Antarctica from, in Antarctica for the science time got onto for the science. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, t- yeah, exactly. And, and now, they, now, and then they get sent. I think they had the the one story that I read uh, recently was they had two days mm-hmm. on the ice. Look, isn't this the most amazing thing? I'm really excited about my science. And then they say, pack your bags, you're off. It's the saddest, <laughs> it's like a sad time in Antarctica. Yeah. So I believe and, they're... Uh, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, and, and so, I mean, they'll go back down there and, and try to restore what they can, but some of the some of the um, windows, um, they have seasonally dependent windows, much like with the flu vaccine, that, mm. are, that are now closed. So... Um, that's going to reduce some of their operations. Which yeah, is, which yeah is and a crucial, one, um, a crucial one that I heard about was called uh, Ice Bridge which is a, a flight over Antarctica to sort of document the ice extent and loss over time. And because of this loss in time, they're going to be, they're going to only going to be able to do fewer yeah. flights now. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a real, I mean, it's the, some of these data sets, you've got to remember that some of these data yeah. sets are years and years yeah. long, like massive 20 years, massive long, and you need, you need every single point. Yeah. You can't else. just shut a government down and close it off. Well, yeah, you can you could try. Well, the you Republicans could. Who would do that? Succeeded. <laughs> then we've got some issues in space. So um, there were concerns that the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution spacecraft, commonly known as MAVEN, would um, the, the launch of that would be imperiled. But that's actually been spared, and it looks likely to to launch in November or December as planned. Meanwhile, Curiosity, the rover on Mars, has also been um, continued roving, taking photos. 
Um, but unfortunately, the higher-ups in NASA couldn't look at them, so they hadn't been able to analyse those and decide oh. where they're going to look next. So, so it was on an auto automated sort of thing? or uh, They would be analysing it and deciding where to go next, oh, and now they, now they won't be able to. Because Mission Control was open, so Mission Control was driving it and exactly. doing the go-kart you know, go yeah. thing still, Yeah. Um, but there was nobody no behind kind of, the scenes no to analyse it. Just yeah. operations. Right, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's a bit of a shame. Um, and then, interestingly, uh, one of the major impacts of the shutdown on science has been the morale. So it's been a real blow to the morale and psychological toll it will take. And we talked about, obviously, with those in you know, Antarctica, the mm. scientists going up there. I mean, how would you feel if a lot of scientists are incredibly passionate about what they do? Yeah. And to have your data set or your whatever you were monitoring disrupted, mm. that would just really frustrate you and, and, and you know, make it sort of I don't know it's just be incredibly well there are a lot of people that's their lives and you know, people exactly. don't go into science necessarily I mean there's the very very few people who go in it for, into it for the glory yeah. <laughs> um, I mean there's probably a few but uh, there's nobody who make, goes in it for the big bucks or the, the power that's uh, right and people are, people's, it's people's lives and they, a lot of people you know I was talking to a scientist the other day and, and she just said to me you know, an American scientist, and she said to me, "Look, I'd just be still doing my work. I'd want to just be doing my research. Not still. even getting paid. We're not for allowed it. to. Yeah, we're not allowed to, even though I were, even though I really wanted to um, do the research exactly uh, for free. I, could, I, you know, so I mean, it's an interesting uh, situation for them to be in. And of course, a lot of the cancer, AIDS, HIV, all these sorts of trials and tests, you know, they have really, really tight trial deadlines and things because yes. they have." ethics approval for certain periods and oh it's just I mean it, it's really um, disheartening for them and I, I think it's interesting that you know during the shutdown science wasn't seen as a core mm. program you know like uh, like welfare and things like that and you know of course welfare needs to be a, a core program but you know I think what a lot of the time the government doesn't realize is that a lot of this stuff is core as well it's it's yes. time dependent mm. cell lines can die people can't do um the research on cancer patients you mm. know the people who go for cancer trials at the uh, national institute of health for example yeah they're the people who are the most desperate yes because absolutely. they're the people who can't be treated anywhere else and you know it's for 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 such a i mean this is getting a little try to stay, steer away from politics but you know to make a political point to do that, in, in, no matter which way you, you view the political mm. point, is quite sad. And um, yeah, so lots of impacts of the shutdown on science, and they will be felt for years to come potentially. Yeah, these data sets are going to be missing, uh, missing some points. Can't just make up the data like I did in sixth form biology. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't know. Yeah, well, you made them up so well. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have confessed that. Bit of scientific fraud. Well, on the. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a pretty good idea what I thought they'd do. Oh, okay. Well, have um, I just become dead to you? Poor... I only did it once. It's. I guess. When? When did you say? How old were you? Sixteen. Sixteen. Old enough to vote. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh no! Hang on. How old to vote? I don't know. It depends where you are in the world. Mm. Yeah. No, eighteen to vote. Eighteen. I don't know oh, what no. it is here. Yeah, something else. Been a while since. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, moving, moving swiftly on. <laughs> Fusion power. And our hopes of eternal energy being possibly sacrificed. Well, so there's, there's been a delay in the construction of a large fusion power device in France called ITER. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has delayed things until 2028 now. We'll talk about these things a little bit later. But basically, um, delayed till 2028, 
this is one of the first fusion plants that was looking to you know seriously get uh, more energy out than was getting put in. Yeah. So their target is to put 50 megawatts. Okay, so 50 megawatts, watts is joules per second, so mm -hmm. that's a bit of energy there. So 50 megawatts, they were looking to get that in, and 500 megawatts out. So wow. they were hoping to get the, the multiplication by 10. Mm -hmm. And they were hoping to reach that um, earlier, but now it's been delayed again because of the um, construction constraints. And, you know, this is the era of big science, you know, like CERN and a lot of other yes. projects. This is huge science, many billions of dollars, I think. The order of about ten billion dollars. Uh, the whole world's going in on it, and you know, hoping that this is going to yeah. pay off and give us sort of deliverable of uh, of, of super cheap, plentiful energy yeah. that will sort it's of the dream. It's the dream, and uh, you know, the issue is, um, you know, in the policy circles, as they call it, is 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 to decouple, you know, our carbon emissions yes. uh, with our energy consumption, uh, and to sort of bring things back to either being renewable or using fusion um, power to. To, to power our energy and so we decouple our energy and our emissions and then therefore we can go on a on a low carbon trajectory but you know we'll talk about this a little bit later but um so is it i mean is this a killer is this a kind of no no so it was, it, it, it's just a delay um yeah. but um you know this was covered in nature this week actually mm -hmm. if anybody wants to have a listen to, to um the nature podcast but also the um the article online there um, are other science podcasts. There are other science podcasts. What? Yeah, yeah. But we'll talk about a little bit about uh, ITA later uh, mm. when we talk about the fusion power, the whole fusion power concept. So that was this week in science, and now we move to um, our first social science section. Is social science even really a science, Paul? Uh, yeah, very definitely. That's why they got science in the end of it. I did political science. I'm a, I'm a social scientist. You did political, political science. science. Oh, really? Did you do quantitative analysis or qualitative? Mostly qualitative. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think my crowning moment was a paper I did about um, it was a comparative. It was a looking at how leaders influence policies, and uh, I did a comparison between David Longy and Robert Muldoon, two New Zealand prime ministers. Uh, and I presented that paper to our class and illustrated it with uh, images of both of those leaders eating lamb chops. So. <laughs> Right, so generalisable really, results then. Really got to the heart of the matter. Yeah, yeah. science. Science, so. okay. And so this is a little bit more scientific than that might have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so this is a, a study by... Um... Samit Srinivasan. Thank you. You're yeah, welcome. I was having trouble with that um, before. Um, so what this guy did uh, was have a look at the keywords in IMDB. So this is the Internet Movie Database. Mm -hmm. And he looked at the keywords over time and looked at when new keywords came into use um, compared to the old corpus. Mm -hmm. So when you look at a, a group of words, you call it the corpus of, of the data. Mm -hmm. So it compared to the keywords for films as people... Now, this is a, this is a, a crowdsourced keywords. Mm -hmm. So people can apply the keywords to each different movie and say what they think of them. So um, in plot-driven ones, you can you know, basically call them action, or you can uh, have a theme during ones. Um, no, that's so it's the, what the people think in general is what the film is about. They get to... Yeah, people, people get to shot. tag it, yeah. And so he had a look at these tags and these keyword tags over time. And by doing some sort of quite clever sort of analysis, he came up with uh, an indication of what he called novelty. Uh, and so this is what social, science, uh, social scientists have used to explain sort of creativity. 
Now he's normalizing with time, so there's not so much, and compared them to what's come previously, mm -hmm. so there's not so much problems with, uh, you know, um, things just coming along, or things changing in um, sort of modern vernacular or whatever. So he's normalized all of that. Right. Uh, and so he's had a look at, as I say, this novelty factor. So for each of the films in each of the years, he's had a look at it. Now what he did for picking out the films that he wanted to analyze, because that was the first issue, was like, what, 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 what films are we going to look at? I mean, a short film is obviously not the same as a long film. Mm -hmm. and, a, and a film before maybe when films were part of everyday life. Uh, is not the same as now when films are almost a part of everyday life. So he did a sort of filtering process on this. So one of the things he filtered out was what was called the period between 1905 and 1907 mm -hmm. called the Nickelodeon boom. The Nickelodeon boom. Have you ever heard of that? I haven't. That's because it got filtered out. That's because it got filtered out of these results. So this was um, a period where there was lots of very, very short films. And the, do you know where Nickelodeon comes from, the, the word? Well... Is it Nicholas Nickleby? That's a really good guess. It's not that, it's though, not is that, it? It's not that, though, no. So a nickel is your five-cent piece. Yeah. An odeon mm. is uh, the, ne the Greek word yes. for a theatre. Ah. So it was a five-cent theatre, so it's called Nickelodeon. That's so cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Makes a lot more sense than Nicholas Nickleby. Yeah, yeah. But plus, you know, that was 1905. When was Nicholas Nickleby? Earlier than that. Really? I think so. Oh, but well, that's why you're the arts literature and I'm the science guy. Um, so, yeah, no, so this, this, he filtered this stuff out because mm -hmm. this was very short films and didn't feel like this, you know, a lot of the time people wouldn't have access to that anyway, even if they had put keywords to those films. Um... So, fil so filtering that out, he, he also filtered out um, adult movies, mm -hmm. so the blue movies, and he also filtered out documentaries, because documentaries okay, are going to grow with time, um, but they're also going to be sort of quite literal. And in keywords in terms of plot, plot's quite a difficult idea for documentaries, and it's not yes. being sort of quite creative. How do you capture the creativity of a documentary? It's very, very hard to do that from keywords. Yes. So filtered that out as well. Uh, please pause, just a little information update. Nicholas Nickleby was published as a serial between 1838 and 1839. There you go. As so it could have been. Nickelodeon boom. Mm -hmm. it's a whole new meaning. Yeah. No? No. All right. So in the end, he had 21,583 films. Wow. That's yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and as I say, he gave a novelty score for each of them over time and normalised it. So what's a novelty score? Well, so this novelty score is a is a sort of statistical um, tool that he came up with. Mm -hmm. um, well, it's actually been used in a number of other situations. So sure. it's been used for Netflix, uh, information from Netflix, information from a lot of other crowdsourced information. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what it what it looks at is it looks at the newness of a word compared to the previous corpus. The newness of a word compared to the previous corpus. So used as a keyword in a film. Sure, how different it is from existing. How different it is, yeah, exactly. So say, um, let's think of, try and think of a good example. Um, if you've got a new creative, creative idea, say in Transformers or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, Transformers may be a, a novel idea because you use robots that's not been in there before mm. uh, and then you get a higher novelty score because robots just doesn't exist in the initial corpus. Now, there's a whole bunch then, of statistics behind that. And then, so there's a, a whole heap of robot movies, then it would no longer be novel. Yeah. But, of course, there's been lots of no-robot mo movies before yeah. Transformers, for example. Yeah, so um, 
Yeah, so, um, you know, this is building on sort of similar sort of analyses that looked at uh, data in Wikipedia right. um, before films were released and actually could try and pre- would actually predict pretty well the, this, how successful the film was going to be. Wow. Now, how they did this uh, was, in terms, of, in terms of that sort of stuff, was have a look at the newness of a film compared to what films are already out. So this is the same thing as we're talking about with the keywords. Sure. You don't want, as a producer, you don't want anything too new, mm-hmm. but you want something new enough because you're going you're, you're gonna to lose people if it's too complex. Not um, too hot, not too cold. Not too cold. But just right. Yeah, exactly. And not to be mean about... Um, that social science part, but that's kind of quite intuitive, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but it's important still to have data to back it up. Mm. I guess it's interesting. To exactly back it up. what what they and you this mean is, this, real scientists? This is what this is what real scientists do. And Leave that's, us this social is, scientists. This is alone. what they've got, you know. Um, I'm but, on board with some mate. Me and some mate are tight. I agree. Totally. Social science forever. Yeah, no, absolutely bona fide, awesome science. And in fact, um, switching topics slightly, but social science might be the savior of. Um, at all, I guess. Natural science is not doing very much for us in terms of global warming, but social science is one of those areas where we can look at decision making and see why we're not making progress towards what, a very, what is a very rational goal, which is to reduce CO2 or at least work out ways in which we're going to adapt to it. But we're not doing it. Anyway, back social to the film. Social science for the win. Social science for the win. I, in some respects, think that social science is even more important in a lot of areas. I'm going to quote you on that. Well, yeah, go for it. And in one of those areas is films and uh, IMDb. So, um, yeah, so they looked at this novelty factor over time. And what they found was actually during the golden age of cinema, there's quite a reduction in novelty. So there's quite a high peak initially, sort of around 1929. But once you get into the golden age of sort of cinema, of what people call the the Hollywood age of 30s, 40s, almost all the way to the 50s, the novelty factor, sort of the creativity or the amount of words that were indicating new ideas coming to films was reducing over time. And to what degree did he factor in kind of world events at that time? I mean, that was obviously a pretty tumultuous time in world history with um, the Second World War going on and, mm. you know, the idea that people might want something familiar. Like from their films, they might want something sort of escapist and... Um, but and reassuring almost. That's a really good point. I, you know, I don't think uh, there's nothing specifically about uh, right. historical events in there. Okay. Um, so. The, so he does look at. I mean, that's true. So you know, he doesn't look at the analysis of that, and, and that's somewhat. Some of the criticism I guess you could have on this sort of work is that um, it's sure it's a it's a quantitative quantitative study sure. that gives you an idea of novelty over time, but. Uh, you know, causation uh, is not correlation, and you know. Indeed. So um, anyway, so the golden age was uh, a time of of lower novelty. Yeah, so it's a lower low novelty, and one of the hypotheses says for this, and your, I think your hypothesis seems absolutely fine as well. But one of the hypotheses he says is this is during the golden period, uh, the number of uh, distributors and and producers just narrowed. Particularly, you only had a, 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 had a few studios, yeah. and so the ideas that were coming out were sort of fairly uniform. Mm. And then there was a huge peak around the 60s, yeah. uh, and the 60s, uh, he hypothesizes that this is due to this sort of the social change, the great social change in the, during the 60s, um, civil rights, um, more women liberation, uh, the sort of peace movements, a great tumultuous time in, in the Cold yeah. War and things like this. 
um, and it's, also the ability to yeah. And that's kind of I guess that's the opposite of side of the coin of mm. the kind of compared with the war years and yeah, it could wanted. be yeah, totally anyway. uh, yeah. And then uh, he finds and did they also have a proliferation of uh, studios at that point? No, I don't don't know. I don't think I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure about that. Um, the two peaks that um, come up when you look at the amount of films that are being made, the one is the Nickelodeon boom. Nickelodeon yep. boom. Mm -hmm. And the other one is around the 1990s when independent studios come and they can start using some of the technology of the 1990s and produce more films. So this is the sheer quantity of films. Yeah, so it's the sheer quantity of films. Um, but in terms of the, uh, yeah, in terms of the actual studios, I don't know. Right. Um, so yeah, so I mean, this is, I just, I think this is a really sort of interesting um, study because I think it's a really nice way to try and use some crowdsourced information mm. to give you some insights some quantitative insights of how sort of creativity it's a bit of a jump to say creativity but some of these novelty factors have changed over time yeah, it's a proxy for yeah it's a proxy perhaps. it's a proxy well, whether or not it's a proxy for creativity it's certainly a, it's certainly about what was being um, released yeah it's not to say that creativity wasn't still happening but it no, was just exactly from, exactly from then yeah exactly and you know then the, the final thing to say on this I mean so you had these two two um, big conclusions. One was that there's this boom during the 1960s. Mm. But the other conclusion was, if you want to make a lot of money, so he looked at the incomes, so the, the, the income of all the movies over time, uh, adjusted for inflation. And he found, I think this is a really nice result as well, he found that there's a sweet spot in terms of the newness and the sort of repetitiveness of a film. Right. And, and if you plot that, you get the same sort of curve as was hypothesised by uh, previous researchers about sort of newness and right. and other so this is called the Wundt um, Berlin curve. I can't, I can't the pronounce Wundt it. Berlin curve. Berlin curve. Mm. Um, and he found that the uh, takings for the cinemas sort of fitted this curve. Right. If you plotted the newness as a proxy, using a proxy of these uh, these keywords. So people want something a little bit different, but not too different. Yeah, exactly. And they'll pay most. They'll <laughs> most, pay most. most you know, the humanity, everybody who's watching it as a whole will pay most for something that's right there at that sort of... Yeah, challenging them, but not too much. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's, that is an interesting finding. Yeah, I thought that, you know, really, really nice finding. I thought this, this was really, really great. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I, I just, I, th I think it's just so nice that you can produce um, such interesting research just on your own. It was a single author paper, um, just looking at uh, IMDb. Yeah. And I just think that's a really nice uh, result. Social science. And finally, we are talking about fusion. Yeah. Primer. So we thought we'd give you guys a little bit of a, just a really quick brief understanding of um, fusion. Uh, why we're so, ex people are so excited about it and where it comes from. I think, I, have I told you this before, but whenever I think of fusion, I think of, you know, those drinking birds that can just get, you know, they... Oh yeah, is that because it was on uh, Homer Simpson's desk yes, it and it was in a nuclear power plant? Maybe. Beep, beep, beep. Oh, it didn't really make. I guess it just was like bumping up. I'm thinking of perpetual motion machines. So it's still not quite a perpetual motion machine, but no. it gets pretty good for its. Well, if we can get it working, it yeah. gets pretty good for its efficiency and cleanliness. Okay. So you know, not cool. destroying our planet, which is good. So what is it? So uh, fusion's a type of nuclear energy. Okay, so... Uh, nuclear sounds bad. Oh, it does, doesn't it? So there's two types of nuclear energy mm -hmm. in, for power. Uh, one's called fusion. 
fusion. And one's called fission. fission. Yeah, that's right. So fission breaks stuff apart. Yes. Fusion puts things together. So, you know, it's in the name. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, fission was uh, obviously the atomic bomb and yes. first dropped in during the Second World War on a, on a populated uh, area, but developed as a, as a weapon. And it only took 10 years for that to be converted into uh, a conventional uh, civil power uh, for power plants and things. Fusion, on the other hand, there was a fusion bomb. first bomb was dropped around the 50s, I think the early 50s. There's been a fusion bomb? Yeah, the hydrogen bomb. Yeah, the H-bomb. Is it a hydrogen bomb? So there's the A-bomb, which is uh, fission, and then there's the H-bomb, which is fusion. Fusion. Yeah, so they're different processes. So it still sounds like bad news if there's a bomb about it. uh, Yeah, but um, I think the thing about, you know, I mean, the fission bomb, so you go from the A-bomb to civil power, for everybody uh, in 10 years. Fusion, uh, you get a fusion bomb and people are very excited about making a, a civil power plan for that. Yes. And it's taken 60 years so far to do that. Why is it so hard? Uh, well, the reason specifically, I mean, fundamentally it comes down to the fact that you're trying to develop and recreate conditions that you'd only find in some very extreme places like the inside of the sun. And it has to be really hot, doesn't it? It has to be really hot. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about the fusion project ITER. Yes. Which is the International uh, Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Um, and that will hopefully attain temperatures of 150 million degrees centigrade. Ooh. Yeah. So that's pretty high. And very, very high pressures. Now, I should explain, I mean, this being a primer, I should explain where they come from. So fission breaks the nuclei, so the centre of atoms apart into two separate things, or several separate things, separate constituents, Mm -hmm. fusion pushes two together. Now, the reason why you can get away with that is because in the case of fission, so fission's easier to understand, you have a a uranium nucleus, so enriched uranium, which is uranium-238, which refers to the number of neutrons in the nucleus. Um, If if you manage to get it to split apart... The cons- those two parts, if you sum up the weight, the mass of those, and compare it to the initial mass, it weighs less. And so the rest is released energy. in energy. Right. Right. So you go from a heavy atom, uh, a heavy nuclei, sorry, to two nuclei that are much lighter. Right. And the rest is released in energy through the equation E equals MC squared, the most famous uh, equation of all time, Einstein's yes. equation. So um, that's fission, so that's great. Okay, can I just check mm-hmm. then? Because obviously nuclear energy has had a bit of a bad rap. Yeah. So the potential for things to go wrong during that process, Yeah. where does that come in? Um, so what that does is it releases what's called ionizing radiation. Mm-hmm. So ionizing radiation means it knocks off, uh, it has the potential to knock off electrons on an uh, atom. Mm-hmm. So change the atomic structure. Mm-hmm. So if you have ionizing radiation in t- in sur- near to biological tissue, uh-huh. if you uh, knock off electrons around an atomic structure, it can interfere with the development of proteins. Development of proteins is it gives rise to DNA, and so you can get mutations in the DNA. So highly right. ionizing radiation goes through and basically destroys all sorts of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of bi- biological material. Got it. Okay, so that's what radiation... And, and of course, then, in, in the event of a... Well, say when you have a nuclear bomb, not only do you have the long-term effects on it from radiation on proteins and DNA mm-hmm. structures, but the initial actual blast is just, like any bomb, is incredibly 
hot end. Like that's where the yeah yeah, and you get this similar sort of you do you do get the same uh, sorts of ionizing radiation in fusion, but uh, firstly it's contained and secondly it's uh, I believe it's at a lot lower levels. Because um, what's cold fusion? Because that's the that's the thing that's really the proper dream, isn't it? But isn't very. Likely. I'm not sure. I um, cold fusion is uh, at the moment a bit of a crank idea. I think <sighs> that's why I'm familiar. with That's it. why. <laughs> that's, so that's that, my domain. Because you can't, as far as we know, you can't fuse nuclei without getting the pressure and temperature up. So I believe, although I'm not you too would familiar say with that. it, yeah, <laughs> I'm not too familiar with it. I don't think you can get nuclei fusing. If it, if you don't get every, if it's not the conditions like the same as the sun, we'll see. Yeah, maybe I'll be shown wrong. Yeah, yeah. Some <laughs> me, and the, me and the social scientists are onto it. Some say we're a dreamer. You can dream. Exactly. Yeah. So fusion. Um. So we said fission. You break two nuclei apart, mm-hmm. and they weigh less than the initial uranium. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of fusion, you put two things together that weigh more than the uh, end up project uh, product. But then so doesn't that isn't that a net consumer of energy? Uh, no. Uh, which way around did I say it? No, so you get two hydrogen nuclei. Yeah. Uh, you can fuse them. So this is not actually how they do them in modern reactors, but right. in the sun, for example, two hydrogen nuclei, and you can make a, a helium nuclei mm-hmm. and some extra bits. Now, the helium nuclei weighs less than two hydrogen nuclei, so oh. it's nuclei, so the rest is released in heat. Right, so same principle as fission, but with combining rather than Combining separating. rather than separating, so, so with much lighter... Mm nuclei the much heavier nuclei so uranium's very very heavy and hydrogen's the lightest element and there's two there's two ways to try and get enough temperature and pressure to fuse the nuclei Uh, one is through lasers through lasers i love lasers Uh, so the um lawrence i think it's called the lawrence livermore uh, laboratories they basically use huge amounts of lasers and shine them all onto one sort of pellet Right. Uh, fuel and try to uh, generate enough heat and pressure to push the pellet down mm-hmm. and generate energy. And so they had a big. Um, so there's been two big uh, fusion uh, notices recently. Yet last week they produced more energy than they absorbed in the pellet. Mm-hmm. So they didn't use. They didn't produce more energy than the whole system. So they didn't. Right. By, they had still had to generate a lot of energy to put the lasers going. Yes. Um, but it produced more energy than it was initially absorbed in the te- in the pellet. So not great, but you know it's it's a, it's a milestone that's important. Mm. Um, as I said earlier, ITER, which is um, actually based on a different process, mm-hmm. which is based on magnetic confinement. So they use a, a plasma. So there's no um, electrons. They use a plasma, highly condensed plasma, and heat it up in in a, in a magnetic field that looks like a donut. Tasty, tasty fusion donut. <laughs> uh, and they release, hopefully that will release enough energy. So at the moment they're looking to get, as I said earlier, 500 megawatts out from 50 megawatts in. And they're mm. looking to do that over about 300 to 500 seconds. So okay. sort of around, you know, uh, somewhere approaching 10 minutes. But eventually they want to be able to do it continuously so that yeah. you can actually show that that's possibly impossible in industrially. Yes. So are there downsides? So there's not the same downsides of fusion that there are of fission, or are there similar? Downsides? No, so there's not 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 the same sort of downsides. The products are a lot less dangerous. Yeah. Um, the material is a lot more plentiful in mm-hmm. the in the in the form of hydrogen, hydrogen, uh, helium isotopes, and things so, like and that. And we would use hydrogen and helium isotopes to 
do fusion. That would be the yeah, the yeah, plan. yeah. So we use different types of that. So and you know, um, we could raid the sun. We could, we could go for a raid. It'd be quite tricky. Um, Might not be the most energy efficient approach, but no. Should I keep chasing my ideas to some places? You should probably, yeah, look for some funding to explore whether you could do that. And Have I told you? No, I, I won't go into my... Another essay that I wrote during my political science career was do about it. fusion in moon energy. <laughs> <laughs> moon energy? Yeah. Well, let's gloss over that. Let's keep this going <laughs> Okay. Well, I think, we, I think we both... I mean, we covered the basics there of, uh, of fusion. Um, so, uh, well, I said the very, very basics. No, um, we could talk about it in a few more details later. Maybe I'll get my moon energy essay out and see what I... See whether anything agrees. See what I can say about that. Mm. Or maybe not. Mm. No, I'd like to read it. Let's give it a read. Let's give it a go. Mm. Science, eh? Yeah. Science. <laughs> Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science. Whisper. Science.